What's up? Welcome back. On this week's show, I talk with Rob Wolf. Rob is a former research biochemist, and he is a two-time New York Times best-selling author. And he he is an expert, or he has tons of knowledge on anything from sleep, fitness, diet, um, anti-inflammatory diets, the autonomy, weight loss, all these sort of things. And Rob has transformed thousands and thousands of lives over the years through his through his work. And I started to find out about Rob Moore from the documentary that he was a co-producer on called Sacred Cow. And it's all about bringing the best, highest quality meat, um, natural meat to our households and to our markets. And then I started using his rehydration um, salt packet called Element. And it's absolutely amazing. So um, I love talking with Rob. You're definitely going to learn a a lot and hopefully get some new tips and tricks that you can incorporate into your own life. Um, Before we get into the episode, I got to talk about Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep is a mattress manufacturer based out of Greenville, South Carolina, and they do an incredible job working with their team, with their clients and their customers on finding the best mattress for them. And at Engineered Sleep, they can make mattresses for all shapes and sizes. They've made mattresses for the top celebrities, top athletes all around the world. Those are called their epic mattresses. But for anybody like you or me that wants a queen size or king size bed, um, they will hook you up with the highest quality mattress at a great price. And they will work with you on anything that you need. So reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE10, L-I-V-E, 10, to get 10% off. You can go to their website at engineeredsleep.com. Give them a call and they'll hook you up or go visit them at their showroom here in Greenville, South Carolina. Mention the podcast and you'll get 10% off. But most importantly, you'll start sleeping better and performing better on a daily basis. If you haven't already, please go give us a rating, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Rob Wolf. Rob, what's up, man? How's your day going? It's good. It's good. We had some sun here in Montana. Like I, I, uh, I feel bad complaining, but I, winter has drug on a little bit. Like we, uh, I keep putting the snow shovel away and I've had to drag it back out twice and it, it snowed on, on Easter, like a foot on oh, Easter. So I'm kind of ready for some sun and to start getting outside more. We've been outside a fair amount in the snow, but I'm ready to get outside in shorts and a t-shirt, you know? So yeah. yeah. I'm in uh, South Carolina, so I think it's 80... 84 yeah. degrees at the moment. So, yeah. um, but I do yeah. love Manta- uh, Montana. Where do you live in Montana? We're in Kalispell. Okay, very cool. It's a yeah. be- so beautiful out there. It's pretty nice. Yeah. Is that where yeah. you've been for a, quite a while now? No, we uh, we were in Reno, and we thought Reno was going to be like the the long term mm-hmm. deal. And for a variety of reasons, we decided to to give Texas a shot and spent about two years in Texas in the hill country between San Antonio and Austin. And we, we liked it, but my kids didn't love it. Like they really li- missed those five seasons and like the snow. And, um, my wife was not super stoked about like, uh, checking her shoes for scorpions every time she put them on and stuff like that. So, so, um, we, we, uh, we're, we're part of a, a jujitsu organization called straight blast gym. And there's several of those gyms in this flathead Valley area, so we moved here and we've been here a little over a year and we love it. Like they're, they're going to throw dirt on me here unless they throw me out of the state. So yeah. Yeah. Well, so now you, now you found your home. Um, yeah. well, man, I've been following you for, for years now, like right? way back to your, 
early CrossFit days, paleo days, and just continued to see you put more and more content and more and more stuff out. And I was watching Sacred Cow, the documentary, mm-hmm. not too long ago, and it really caught my attention. I had just really gotten into be- meat being a prior or a, a main part of my diet, really like almost taking over my diet. And then I realized I had to have you on the podcast. So I kind of want to start off around Sacred Cow and meat. Sure. Um, and one one thing I was thinking about: where do you think these negative nutritional claims started to come from um, early on around meat that is man you, you know it's interesting and uh, Diana Rogers you should interview her at some point because we we co-authored the the book Sacred Cow and worked together on the film but we worked very specifically on different things and she actually went deep on the history of this stuff so this is an area that she's she's better at but it, it goes all the way back to the early um late 1800s mid to late 1800s and uh into the early 1900s like sanitariums like these health resorts where they would do uh water and light therapy and fasting and everything like if you've ever watched the the movie or read the book the road to wellville and it talks about kellogg like harvey kellogg you know where where you know kellogg cornflakes came from and it's interesting this was a very pro or very anti-meat um, movement. And it was because uh, there was a strong religious affiliation with this uh, kind of peripheral to where the Seventh-day Adventist kind of religious faith goes, where they they read into the biblical scriptures that there's a, a kind of a prohibition against eating meat. And it was thought pretty strongly, and I think that they were actually onto something, that um, meat eating led to impure thoughts and lustfulness. Okay. And I, and I think they're right because you're actually healthy. And when you're healthy, you are horny and randy and things work, you know, your hormones work. You're actually in reproductive status, particularly for women, you know, like women, um, show nutrient deficiency or calorie deficiency, um, problems so quickly because if a woman is not properly nourished, like biology isn't going to want her to necessarily be pregnant. So this stuff goes really far back. Um, and it started in kind of a, a religious format that was, you know, prohibitions against impure thoughts and, and all this stuff. And, and it was thought that feeding people these, um, these cornflakes basically like these, you know, didn't taste very good, real low nutrient profile, that it would help you to be a more pure person. And I, I think in some wow. ways it, it's true, you know, and, and uh, so it came out of all of that stuff. And then just as kind of a, an aside, the whole field of dietetics, registered dietitians came out of the Seventh-day Adventist influenced um, academic scene, you know, like Loma Linda University mm-hmm. uh, and, and the influence that the Seventh-day Adventist had. But the whole field of dietetics has always been very kind of, pro-vegetarian, anti-meat, and it, it is a, a kind of an artifact of the early influence that the Seventh-day Adventists had on this story. And so that's kind of a piece of it. And then around the 1950s, going into the 1960s, there was a researcher, Ansel Keys, who who did some some studies, that uh, the, the Seven Country Study, uh, that looked at fat consumption in, in general and animal fat consumption in particular. And he drew this line that seemed to suggest that the more fat that people consume, the more animal fat that people consumed, 
the higher the rates of cardiovascular disease. The only thing about that is that he ended up leaving out a couple of countries mm -hmm. that skewed the results. So, uh, you know, if you delete enough um, contradictory data, then you're, you're able to make a nice, nice linear fit point. there. Yeah. yeah. And so there was that piece that, it, and I'm given a very piss poor uh, treatment of all this stuff. We do a much, much better job on the book, but right around that same time, there was this commission put together to try to figure out what was, was, um, important for human nutrition. This commission initially its charter was to, uh, minimize the rates of, uh, nutrient deficiencies, like things like iodine deficiency, causing thyroid goiters and vitamin D deficiency and stuff like that. By the 1950s, 1960s, we had largely succeeded with that. And of course, once a governmental agency is put together, it doesn't go away. It needs to find a new, new, you know, mountain to climb. And the new mountain was to, um, to try to improve the health of Americans and a clerk who was involved with that commission was a vegetarian and was tight with Ansel Keys. And so there was this kind of backdoor, you know, influence within uh, the, the Ansel Keys's, you know, research that came in. And this was when saturated fat became demonized, uh, dietary cholesterol became demonized. And even Ansel Keys himself early on said that uh, dietary cholesterol was a non-issue, but, but that, that thing stuck, you know, for still yeah. you'll find doctors and dietitians saying you shouldn't consume too much dietary cholesterol and whatnot. But, uh, there was this, this big meeting and it's kind of interesting, uh, you know, arriving at, on the heels of, of COVID here, but there was, a the scientific community was not sold that this low fat diet was going to solve any problems and might actually cause a bunch of problems. Mm -hmm. And one of the senators, I, I want to say that it was a uh, McGovern Senator McGovern. This was the McGovern commission. He said, senators do not have the luxury of waiting for all the science to be in. We must act. And so they acted and they, this is where the, uh, the, the four food groups gave way to the food pyramid. Ultimately, uh, the demonization of animal products and animal fats and, you know, Americans began to eat less protein and started to eat more carbs and more calories overall. Mm -hmm. Because this was the the age that led to like snack wells. I don't know. You, you're pretty young, so you might not remember those. But I remember as a kid, they got the American Heart Association stamp of approval because they were zero fat. They were loaded with sugar. They were just like a, a cookie matrix held together with weird chemicals with a, a, even more sugar than a normal cookie because it didn't have fat in it. So you had to figure out how to make that same mouth flavor, mouth feel that mm -hmm. the fat provides. And so... This is kind of the beginning of the um, the junk food industry, uh, subsidized by uh, a, you know farm subsidies, and that that's a whole interesting story that we had in there. Like uh, Richard Nixon trying to get reelected, and he he went to the farmers. He needed a conservative base of people to support him, and he went to the the farmers, and he reenacted a bunch of uh, then defunct World War II. Um, uh, stimulus and, and subsidy programs for the mm -hmm. farmers. But this encouraged these folks to produce just monumental amounts of food, food, more food than what we really needed. And so this led to, um, for a, a, a number of years, just food being like destroyed, the government would pay for its production, but it was more food than what we could eat. And it would saturate the market and depress prices and everything. 
But what they decided needed to be done was figure out a way to make this stuff really long shelf life. And this was right around the time that the, the, uh, the high fructose corn syrup had been produced in like the late 1800s, but it was right around this time that a, a industrial scale process was figured out. And basically this is where all of this long shelf life, hyper palatable food became, was born effectively. Yeah. And it was all government subsidized. And so, uh, again, I don't know if I did a great job answering the question, but it's a long sorted history. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, I, I think that there are nefarious activities that have happened around this, but it wasn't a cobble of people like twisting their, their mustaches to make all of this stuff a disaster. But I think that there was opportunism that occurred along the way that, that has led to a very broken food system, a broken medical system and a hell of a time to, to, um, pull oneself out of it because going to the store and buying an apple is far more expensive than it is to buy a Twinkie. And that is insanity. That is when you absurd. look at the engineering that goes into a fucking Twinkie and the, the inputs and all the processing and everything, it's like, how on God's green earth does that thing cost less than an apple? And it's because they're the, all of the inputs are massively subsidized and, and, uh, but it all has played into this kind of, uh, you know, anti-meat, mm -hmm. anti-saturated fat, you know, that that whole story. And and then you've got kind of this religious, moralistic element to it, which has always been there. And I would say has been kind of revitalized with the, the modern kind of woke vegan yeah. movement where they tie this stuff into climate change and ethics and a host of other things. And And one thing that I think is a big issue with that is once you continue to pile on those claims right over and over and over again it is that much harder times a 10 to reverse that like yeah. to get people's opinions back to hey meat is actually good for you because you've been hearing for 40 50 years that meat is bad for you and right so i'm 33 and really i've noticed in the last 10 years 15 years was the anti-meat movement being you know uh help bad for your health like causing heart issues, causing all these different cancers, all of these things that I believe now are proven to be debunked. Did that come from the vegan movement? Did that come from certain movements? Like where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, it, it really did. Ultimately, its nexus was kind of out of this like vegan movement. Uh, T. Colin Campbell, who's a pretty decorated researcher at Yale, I believe. Um, I'm, I'm forgetting where where he's a professor, but he wrote the book, uh, forks over knives. And then there was mm -hmm. a, a documentary around that. And then he also, uh, did the, was kind of the primary investigator in the China study. So everybody's typically heard about the China study and that is highlighted in the book and film forks over knives. Yeah. And in that, the, the claim there, there's kind of two pieces. Of this it, they, they look at rural Chinese populations as they industrialize, and their health declines and they they lay all of their health woes at at the the idea that they increase their meat consumption what they ignore is that they increase their consumption of sugar and cigarettes and all all this other so there's all this other stuff there that that gets tied into that no and then exercise, there's also that sort of thing. yeah yeah they tend to exercise less they they uh it, you know they move from a rural agrarian in, environment to more of a 
industrial, like working in factory type environment, which has all kinds of challenges associated mm -hmm. with it too. But there's this kind of epidemiological piece looking at the shift in the Chinese population, which there's a lot of holes in that. And uh, Denise Minger is maybe one of the best people that's done a, a really deep analysis of here's what they claim. Like, it, for example, there uh, there's a claim that meat is correlated at some some number with increasing cancer rates. What's ironic is that this Chinese population increased its wheat consumption. Also, the, the correlation with wheat and cancer was larger than meat and cancer, but that didn't make it into yeah. the, the published data, you know, just, just as an aside. And these correlation studies are really dodgy. The, it, you, you need a, a relationship that is very, very powerful. Epidemiology did a great job with connecting tobacco use and cancer but it's because on on like kind of an arbitrary scale the connection between tobacco use and cancer is like 10,000 uh meat consumption and cancer is a two by by comparison like mm -hmm. it, it should it should not remotely be at the the power that that suggests that there's something really here and then when you do the actual like clinical interventions where you feed people meat and you're looking for um, nitrosamines and these, these carcinogenic compounds, you just don't find it. So you don't really find mechanistic support for that stuff. So, but that epidemiology part is one piece. And then, uh, within that, that China study part, they fed mice, these diets that were either high protein or low protein, the protein coming from whey protein and the, the diet overall being garbage. The, the diet being highly processed food, like not a species appropriate diet. These, mm -hmm. these mice are not eating crickets and grains and grasses and stuff like that. But they, they feed them a high protein diet, low protein diet. At the end of the day, the high protein diet ends up succumbing from cancer faster and harder than the low protein diet. What, what they neglect to mention though, is that the high protein diet group got cancer much later than the low protein diet wow. group. They were feeding them these different diets and they were also feeding them a toxicant called aflatoxin. It's a, it's a carcinogenic compound out of um, mold. So what was interesting is the high protein diet protected against cancer for longer. Once you had cancer, potentially the high protein diet wasn't really doing you any favors. And we've understood that for a long time. Once you actually have cancer, it, it's hard to get rid of it under the best of circumstances. And, and uh, I, ironically, the the dual challenge of dealing with cancer is if you do something like a low calorie diet, you're also usually experiencing something called cachexia, which is a loss of muscle mass and, and tissue in general mm -hmm. due to the cancer treatments. So this has been one of the, you know, the, the things to try to figure out if you feed someone really well, when they have cancer, you're feeding the cancer, but if you underfeed them, then they're, you're, they're going to die from, from muscle mass loss. Sure. You know, it's just kind of a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But it really misrepresented what this data really suggested, which was that under nor, uh, all other situations being equal, a properly fed organism, adequate protein is actually cancer protective. But if you, you, you and again, this was under the circumstances of feeding these animals a known dose of a carcinogen to induce cancer in them. But once they had cancer, things went worse faster with a, ro a high protein mm -hmm. diet. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's one thing that I always think about too is like all these studies, they take what they want from them and neglect 
all the other data and data that was produced during the study just to create the narrative that they were, you know, hoping to make. And one thing I think some people, I mean, I think it's beginning to come more um, known, but processed meat and meat are very two different things when it comes for health. I'm not even as like, I'm the crazy guy that I'm like bacon and, and, uh, 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 lunch meat and stuff. I'm not that freaked out by it. Like I, okay. I, I, and, and, and I may be wrong, but when I look at the associations there, there, there is a stronger association with say like cancer and processed meat, but, um, they usually say that it's like nitrates and nitrites. The irony there is that the main thing in vegetables that is supposed to be cardioprotective is nitrates and nitrites. This is the stuff that like people will use beet juice before they, they do a workout for the, the like nitric oxide release and stuff like that. And I, I look at a uh, traditional food systems, you know, like, uh, Italian sausages and stuff like that, where the, mm -hmm. these meats are, are smoked and, and, uh, fermented oftentimes will have a sugar added to them and they'll, they'll actually ferment in like the, the casing and all that. And they know that's kind of a, a big cry away from, uh, say like, uh, Oscar Meyer bologna or something like that. But I'm, <laughs> I'm still, when I just look at that, I'm like, okay, there's some salt, there's some protein, there's some fat. Like mm -hmm. I, and again, I may be wrong on this. I may, I may amend my position here in the future, but I'm not that freaked out by like lunch meat and stuff like that. Like to the tune that we probably have it for lunch two, three, four times a week, you know, sure. depending on what we, we have going on. I feel like, as a parent and, you know, entrepreneur and everything, I can cook a dinner and I can cook a breakfast. I can't fucking pull off lunch. Like <laughs> lunch is kind of a grab bag, you know? And so it's kind of like lunch meat and salami sure. and some cheese and, you know, a little bit of fruit on the side, but it looks like an uh, anti-pasta plate, you know, uh, uh, minus kind of the, the pasta and the bread most, for the most part. So I don't know, man, like I, I'm not as, I'm not, I'm not that freaked out by lunch meat and stuff like that. Like it, which kind of people are like, Oh, you're an idiot then. But I, I just looking at it as a biochemist and having a decent toxicology mm -hmm. background, kind of like, ah, I don't know. Like I'm, I'm just not, I'm not sure what the, the boogeyman is here. Got it. So long as it's part of a diet that overall you're not overeating. And, that and that's kind of the, the main thing. Like, so long as we find a way of eating that we're not overeating, then I think good stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Is that one thing that you, I mean, right, you mentioned balance, like finding things, not, not overeating a certain thing. Well, in the United States, and I guess in the world, there's a huge problem in overeating the wrong thing, right? Right. The junk food. Why is junk food so addictive? Why do, have, why do people have such a problem getting away from those types of food? So I, I'll encourage people to look up this thing called Doritos Roulette, Okay. And yeah. it, it, it's this fascinating it, and they're delicious. Apparently it has wheat in it, so I can't eat it. But, um, so Doritos are amazing. I remember Doritos, mm -hmm. you know, even just opening up a bag and smelling it. Like you can imagine Doritos smell right now. It's I can so like, right now. damn. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> okay. So there's been a lot of engineering that's gone into this stuff, but D Doritos roulette popped up and this was right. My, my, uh, wire deep book. You can see the, the, mm -hmm thing on the wall, I was in the process. I think I had published this already, published Wired Eat, and Doritos Roulette popped up. And what it said is, careful, some chips are exceptionally hot. And so in this bag, not only is there just this general like good flavor profile, 
Some of the chips are mild, some are medium, and every once in a while, there's like a burn your face off hot chip in there. So there's this distribution, it follows a power law. And it creates this excitement that is similar to the way that drug addicts talk about like getting their their box out for like getting heroin ready, where like mm-hmm. they, you, there's a whole ritual and that ritual increases dopamine in the brain and it makes the thing like that much more exciting. And I, I, I looked at what they had done here and I, I, uh, I wrote to the folks, I, I went to the Doritos roulette website and there was an email, you know, contact us. And I was like, they'll never get back to me. But I wrote to him like, Hey, I'm a food researcher and I'm just curious. Do does the distribution of hot, medium, and mild chips follow a power law? Just curious. And it was like two days later, and this gal got back to me and she's like, One, the scientists here are so excited that you wrote in, they're huge fans of your work. So, like, these people, it was just cool. But the people who are engineering our food to be addictive follow my work, they follow evolutionary biology, and they're very, very good at it. Which, which will hopefully I'll remember to, to circle back to that point. And she said, yes, it does follow a power law. And everybody was really impressed that you would pick that up. So we have companies that have massive budgets and they're, they're government subsidized effectively because these, these foods, the inputs that they're receiving are subsidized. They're cheaper than what they would otherwise be in kind of a, a free open market. And they understand the need for evolutionary biology to make things hyper palatable if you want to sell a lot of it. Mm-hmm. The palatability is how good something tastes. And nobody, as good as a ribeye steak is, you eat ribeye, at some point you're going to be like, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm totally good. But um, there's another uh, uh, thing that I had as part of Wired to Eat. And it's this guy, Adam Rickman, uh, who did the show Man Versus Food. Yeah. And I've he did this, this. thing, yeah. the, the ice cream sink, mm-hmm. uh, the ice cream sundae challenge. And so he had to eat this like eight pound ice cream sundae and he started getting through it and he totally bogged down. He was turning green. He was starting to gag and almost throw up. And he asked the waitress, could you get me a plate of extra salty, extra crunchy French fries? And she did. And he started eating a couple of French fries and then he would eat a bite of the ice cream and French fries and ice cream. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is that our, our brain both wants novelty. It wants something new, but also when we get exposed to a lot of something, we experience palate fatigue, we get tired of it. And what he was able to do, he would have failed in eating this ice cream sundae if it was only the sundae, but he ate 2000 calories of French fries and he was able to eat all of it. And this is our modern food environment. Like when we go into most folks pantry, we have so many different flavor options in there that you, you can basically create the same scenario that this guy had. We have these like over the top flavor experiences like the Doritos roulette, and we have a huge variety of them. So you can just keep eating thing after thing after Mm -hmm. thing. And whether it's paleo or vegan or low carb or what have you, most dietary interventions. So there's the, you know, try to eat everything in moderation, which is the dietetics approach. Like no foods are forbidden, just weigh and measure the food and don't overeat it. That fails all the time. Like hardly anybody succeeds with that. I think serial killers are like the only people that that really (laughs) succeed with that thing. But whether it's like cabbage soup diet or paleo or vegan and what have you, these things work better than the everything in moderation because it limits palate options Mm -hmm. to some degree. Like 
but uh, you know vegan pizza kind of sucks keto pizza kind of sucks you know it's like ah, it's okay but it's not great it's not awesome carby pizza crust that has this crunchy mouth flavor and this aroma and then the fat from the cheese and then whatever toppings Oof. and if you do a vegan pizza it's the carbs but you don't get the fatty toppings so you don't you you're only getting kind of one part of this kind of over-the-top palate experience so i see any type of dietary approach that kind of works is almost like nutritional self-defense uh, you know if you don't want to get into fights don't go to biker bars at two o'clock at night and <laughs> you know act like an asshole and and if you want to succeed with with any type of nutrition again whether it's paleo or vegan or what have you you kind of have to pick one of these lanes you're kind of either you know high carb, low fat, or, or higher fat, lower carb. Maybe you do something kind of zone-esque, but if you, you do kind of a balanced macro deal, always the people who are good at that, they don't eat processed food hardly mm -hmm. at all. It's like sweet potatoes, a little bit of butter, some broccoli, like the balanced macro deal. What, what that forces is minimally processed food. If you try to do a balanced macro of 30, 30, 30 of protein, carbs, fat from from processed foods, this is where burritos and, and, and taquitos and all the shit come from, you know? And so I, it, you know, it, it, that to me is kind of the global picture, the kind of big meta picture of where this industrialized food system has come from. And, and it operates at such a sophisticated level, like the Unilever God, it was back in 2014, I want to say it was quite a while ago, but they, they mentioned that they had uh, allocated $50 million to evolutionary biology, evolutionary psychology research. And Unilever is one of these huge food manufacturing firms. They do all kinds of stuff, but food manufacturing is one of their big deals. These folks deeply understand the importance of evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology, the neuroregulation of appetite. And they're figuring out ways of, of hacking it, of, of breaking it basically so that we eat more food. But when we go to our doctors and our dietitians and we mention neuroregulation of appetite, evolutionary biology, they look at you like you have three heads. Like our gatekeepers don't understand this problem at all, Dang. like not at all. And then the people who are profiteering from our illness, from us eating this food, mm -hmm completely understand these topics, completely embrace these topics. And so it's literally like the fox is in the hen house and the sheepdog that's supposed to be protecting us can't even recognize a fox, can't recognize the danger that's there. So these scientists, right, that you mentioned follow you are designing these foods, right, for the profit of the company to get us completely addicted or the population completely addicted to foods that they know are unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nothing there's nothing we can do about that. There's no regulations. There's nothing that could be there's put nothing in illegal place. about what, uh, no, I mean, yeah, it, it, right. you know, it would be a, I I'm pretty libertarian in my, my thinking. And I, I would be horrified by what type of legislation would go into regulating that, you know, as it is, um, we've seen some regulation like in Mexico where they, they taxed, uh, sodas, and it was pretty successful. It did decrease the consumption of sodas and there was some, some improvement there, but we've also, uh, what is the thing that folks are going to want to tax butter, meat, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the danger there is that it's really easy to, to 
get that thing kind of wrong. And then the, the irony there is one of the biggest differences between say like a low income family and what the children eat and a middle or upper income family and what the children eat is that the, the lower income family typically eats fewer animal products, specifically like fresh meat. Mm -hmm. And this is arguably some of the most important nutrients that these kids could have for brain development and, and for like normal blood sugar and all that stuff. So the, the regulation of these foods is dodgy in that people are going to get it wrong. Unfortunately, you know, I mean, if I was yeah. some benevolent dictator of, uh, if I was the Elon Musk of food and I could go and like <laughs> buy all the food companies, I'm like, okay, here's what we're going to do. You know, we're going to make chips and soda, super expensive. And, you know, and even then you make stuff expensive enough and then you just create black markets, you right. know, it, it's, uh, people would find it's been, a way. People will find a way. I've lived in two states now. I'm not into uh, marijuana personally. It's just not not my my main jam. But I, I was in re uh, Nevada when it became legalized, and I, I just as of uh, January, uh, marijuana has become legalized in in uh, uh, here in, in in Montana. I'm blanking on even where I am. Uh, but uh, what's interesting about it, it sounds like I am actually smoking a lot of pot. <laughs> Where am I? Um, but what's interesting about that is that they, the, these, uh, entities taxed that marijuana very, very stoutly. And they tax it to a degree that it's still cheaper to get it off the black market than it is to go to a dispensary and get mm -hmm. it. So the main people who go to a dispensary, are usually kind of professionals who have more money and they just don't want to, you know, deal with the, the, challenges of you know meeting Vinny on the street corner sure. to get his dime bag or whatever <laughs> but it's so even in scenarios where something was illegal it becomes legal if you make it expensive enough the black market still wins out on that and so i, I it, and we've seen this uh, to some degree with um like cigarettes and, and different things where they try to tax them to such a degree to to really minimize their consumption then it incentivizes somebody to do a black market on it and and i and that would happen yeah I think that that would happen. So you have to be careful with that. And it, maybe it would overall be helpful. You know, like the black market is still going to ultimately be more expensive on this stuff. But I, I, I don't know. The team at Engineered Sleep is going to work with you to get the best mattress possible for you and your family to get the best night's sleep possible. Use promo code LIVE10 and you'll get 10% off your order. So go to their website, engineeredsleep.com. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. Or you can give them a call, mention the podcast, or go visit them at their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. But most importantly... Get yourself a mattress that fits you so you sleep better at night and have more energy and more production on a daily basis. Sleep is the number one thing you can focus on for daily performance. So stop putting it on the back burner. Reach out to, to the team at Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE10 to get 10% off your order. And now we're back to the conversation. No. One thing that I don't think is talked about enough is, you know, I, I say unhealthy diet. Everybody has their own diet. So you know, whatever an unhealthy diet is, but really junk food, that type of processed food, it not only affects, you know, your physical shape and how you look, but it affects, you know, your anxiety and depression and mood and all that sort of, is that something you've looked into about the connection between say junk food and depression, anxiety, mood? Yeah. I mean, I'm not an expert in that. I, I look to people like Kelly Brogan, who's a psychiatrist and she has gone deep on this. And, you know, there was a, a book from, 
maybe the late eighties, mid to late eighties that looked at, at changing the diets of prisoners and, and, uh, because they're really terrible diet and they, uh, decrease the sugar, increase the animal products and like the, the rates of violence and kind of like the self-reported mental affect, like, are you happier? Do you feel less anxious was markedly improved. And I, I, I would just, uh, not that people need to eat a ketogenic diet to get this, but there was, um, there was just a study that I was looking at on social media that looked at, um, people undergoing chemotherapy and the anxiety around chemotherapy, because I mean, it's a, it's a big deal. They have cancer, their chemotherapy is unpleasant and everything. The ketogenic diet seemed to show benefits with body composition and also with like mental outlook, like people weren't as anxious. They, they, uh, self-reported greater happiness, Mm -hmm. more stable, you know, mood and all that type of stuff. And Kelly Brogan, uh, she will not work with people if they refuse to consume animal products and also to, to be willing to like cut out refined sugar and, and stuff like that. Cause she just doesn't think that they're going to get better. Like yeah. if, if you insist on being vegan or vegetarian and, uh, uh, yeah, problems like she's not going to work with you because she doesn't feel like it's ethically sound. It's, to do, most, so. it's definitely, you have to have it to get better. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is there, I mean, I know from my personal experience, if I eat shitty crappy food i feel like crap for the next day what what do you put into your diet you know what i know you've gone through a couple of diets but what do you currently put into yourself yeah you know like i 23 years ago when i first embarked on this it was a low carb paleo type diet mm-hmm. and i i endeavored to eat lots and lots and lots of vegetables like i would i would have a bowl this big of like salad greens and all this stuff because i really felt like vegetable matter was super important it, I, i've other than some experiments along the way, I've been right around that ketogenic level. Like mm-hmm. I just feel way better. Um, I can have a meal of carbs here and there, but if I do them, you know, if I have breakfast, lunch, dinner, you know, kind of carbier 40, 50 grams of carbs, to each one, I start feeling bad. Like I just get on kind of a carb yeah. roller coaster and whatnot, but maybe about six years ago, I started noticing these weirdos in the, uh, the carnivore scene. And they were, they were like, oh, I have all these gut issues or I had crippling rheumatoid arthritis, like, yeah. uh, uh, Michaela Peterson, you know, I got yep. to sit down with her at Palo FX years ago. And, uh, you know, she was diagnosed with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis at the age of two, at the age of like 17, she had had four joints replaced at that, that point, like a hip, a knee, a shoulder, you know, I think something in her finger or something like that. So something to that effect. And kind of out of desperation, she tried this, not just carnivore, but what I call one cut carnivore. Like it was basically ribeyes. Like in salt, right? Yeah. And salt and water, you know, and she was healed, you know, like all this depression and all these gut issues and everything went away. Her rheumatoid arthritis went away. Similar deal with her dad, uh, Jordan Peterson. And I just started digging into this scene and there had, there had been these like zero carb folks for years that I'd seen. I'm like, oh, they're nuts. You know, you want to eat some vegetables, fermentable fiber, all that type of stuff. I was like, well, shit, man. Like I'm the person who came up with, with the idea of the autoimmune paleo diet. Like that first appeared. It, Mm -hmm. It was only a, a, a paragraph in my first book, the paleo solution, because I just didn't have enough time to allocate you know, to a, a really deep dive in it. And now there've been a, a good number of clinical trials and it shows good efficacy, uh, autoimmune paleo diet for different gut and autoimmune conditions. But there was still just like 
it helped people, but it didn't just, it, it was super underwhelming. Like it, it, for a lot of people, it kind of helped, but it, it, it didn't really put things a hundred percent in remission. And then I saw these folks eating this carnivore or peri carnivore diet. And it was just jaw dropping how yeah. good the results were, you know, like GI problems and autoimmune problems, uh, uh, neurological issues. And so I've kind of migrated closer and closer that direction. And now I do a little bit of fruit. Um, I'll do a little bit of mushrooms, a little bit of, I guess still kind of fruits like olives and zucchini and stuff like that, but it's really intermittent and mm -hmm. my digestion is so much better. My energy levels are better. Like this, this last niggling bit of kind of rheumatoid arthritis type stuff that I had, I attributed it to jujitsu, but it's, it's gone going away. Like it's just gone, you know, and dairy was a big deal. I can't do dairy. I, I dairy protein. I can do dairy fats, but dairy protein, whey protein, cheese, that type of stuff. Um, grass fed doesn't matter. You know, it, yeah. it, it just seems to be a problem. So that's been interesting. Uh, it, that, that, uh, that's carnivore shift I've diet. been going probably the last six months. Yeah. A lot of fruits, yeah. a lot of good meats. And I know I've seen an improvement, not only like mentally, but also like physically I've noticed yeah. like losing certain types of weight that was really hard for me to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems crazy. It, it seems patently crazy, you know, <laughs> but there's a couple of people out there. This, uh, uh, Christine Anderson, I think is her name. She's in her mid to late forties. She hasn't eaten anything except ribeyes for like 20 years. And she looks amazing. Like she's super hot, great shape, barely works out, you know, it, and she hasn't died from nutrient deficiencies. And there's a, a it, and now it's a, it's a one person, but now we're starting to see lots of people have done yeah. this. The, the one thing that I, I is a little disheartening, you know, you get a lot of, uh, young guys and, um, they'll see Sean Baker, who's big, jacked, strong dude. And I love Sean. Like he's mm -hmm. a great guy, but they'll just like go carnivore because they're like, I'm going to get more jacked. And it's like, dude, I don't know if you need to do that. Like I do still kind of encourage people to eat as broad of a diet as they can get away with, without suffering consequences. If you want to tinker with, with carnivore, by all means do it. But I don't know that it's the best first place to go with tinkering with your diet, but it also, it's a pretty damn good reset. Like if you want to use I that as a that. start and then you slowly reintroduce things, then I, I think that that's legit. Yeah. Have you ever looked into blood type and diet? Yeah. And you know, ages ago, I mean, I, I was working at a, a B Dalton bookstore, which was the, was something that was bought by, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the, the bigger bookstore chains later on ages ago when the blood type diet came out and it was really interesting, but like I'm an A blood type. So I'm, I'm supposed to be eating grains and low meat and everything. And I, yeah. I, that would, that would kill me. And it was, it was interesting. I remember talking to Mike Eads who wrote, um, protein power life plan. And he mentioned that, uh, what was fascinating about the blood type diet is the, the O type, which is supposed to be this like hunter gatherer, caveman, low carb type diet. There were, there was like eight, eight of those people for every one of the other blood types represented in this, this forum, you know, the uh, Dr. Diadamo forum is like, what I took from that is that's actually the one that works. And this other stuff is kind of like, eh, you know, it's, it's more astrology than anything else, but like, had everybody been eating that O type, they would have been doing pretty well. I, I do think that there are some genetic 
considerations around diet for sure, but mm-hmm. it, it specifically that blood type diet, I just don't think there's a lot of, lot of substance to it. Got it. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. One thing that I've seen me and my fiance both have noticed is gluten really messes us up. Yeah. Can you explain what gluten is and like what it is found in? Yeah. So gluten and, and gliadin type proteins, there's a whole family of these, these proteins that are found in wheat, rye, oats, barley, millet. These are all grains that are pretty tightly related. Uh, corn has similar, uh, uh, proteins, but, but different rice has some similar proteins, but these are all what's called anti-predation proteins. Like they, they block, uh, the ability for our digestive enzymes to break proteins down. So they're, they're protease inhibitors. Mm-hmm. They tend to cause inflammation and particularly the gluten in, um, susceptible individuals. Like I have the, the celiac gene complex and this gluten protein interrupts or, or is, uh, the gluten protein gets attached to a protein in our body and it forms what's called a haptin. And this, this chunk of our body of protein from our body and this chunk of gluten ends up looking just different enough from us that our immune system will attack it and create antibodies against it. it. But part of the problem is that those antibodies also attack part of the protein that is from our body. So this is where an autoimmune disease Mm -hmm. emerges and it's called celiac disease. And it ends up damaging in particular, the, the villi, the little finger like, uh, structures in our gastrointestinal tract that help us to absorb nutrients. But the, the protein that is damaged is this enzyme that is in every cell of our body. And when that enzyme gets damaged, it, it, uh, and gets the autoimmune kind of response to it, literally any tissue in the body can be affected. It's called a a transglutaminase, tissue transglutaminase. So when you look at gluten or celiac related problems, it's neurological, it's dermatological, Mm -hmm. it's gastrointestinal. It's like everything, which makes you sound like a crazy person. It's like, oh, it can affect everything, but it affects everything because transglutaminase is a, a substance that's found in all of the cells of our body. That doesn't affect everybody. And there are people who have this uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and they're not sure if it's like wheat germaglutinin, which is another kind of irritating type of protein. Uh, For some people, maybe FODMAPs, these fermentable carbohydrates, like we can find in beans and onions Mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. Um, some people find that they, they get good benefit from a low FODMAP diet because they get a lot of gas and bloating and whatnot. But those are the, the, the kind of takeaway is that most things in, in nature, particularly in the plant world, they either have, you know, spines or thorns or poisons to to prevent themselves from being eaten, you know, and even quinoa has a saponin. It's a soapy type stuff. Like if you get, if you get fresh quinoa, they tell you to rinse it. And when you rinse it, it makes this soapy type uh, substance that you you pour off. And that saponin uh, causes intestinal damage. It, it damages the GI tract. Uh, some smart folks ended up engineering a type of quinoa that didn't have saponin. And the problem was that they couldn't get it out of the field because the birds ate all of it. It's wow. already a problem for the, the birds to eat it, but the, the, the saponin's <laughs> 
pump the brakes on the birds consuming that stuff enough that they could at least harvest, you know, have a reasonable harvest. But quinoa absent saponin, like everything ate it. None, none of it, very little of it survived. Do you think a lot, does a lot of those issues come from the inflammation? Yeah, it ultimately ends up causing inflammation. And, you know, the, the, to, to that point, I don't know that, like, I think that grains have always been problematic for at least some people, especially mm -hmm. if they take over too large a part of the diet. But like that celiac and gluten topic is interesting because there are people who have the celiac gene, but they don't respond negatively to gluten because they have gut bacteria that degrade gluten. They, wow, they have okay. these things called proleal endopeptidases that, that degrade gluten. The problem is that, you know, our parents, particularly our mothers, typically have been on antibiotics at some point. Mm -hmm. And then we were in utero and maybe they had antibiotics while we were in utero and then were born. And like, for me, I ended up, um, I had, uh, uh, tonsillitis all the time. I had uh, strep throat. I ended up going on antibiotics, tetracycline for acne between the ages of 13 and 21. Like I've just bombed my guts. And so it, it, a lot of the things that could be handled by gut bacteria, I think are now missing because of antibiotics Dang. and an overly clean environment and all that stuff. And it's not, it's not easy to repopulate this stuff. Like the, uh, there's all kinds of, um, products out there with different, uh, you know, probiotic, prebiotic type stuff. And I see it being about a coin toss, like 50% of people seem to benefit from it. And the other 50%, they either don't get any benefit or maybe even makes them worse. And this okay. is some of my, my problem around like gut microbiome testing. I, I just don't know that it really helps people all that much, but I do think that the natural state for humans is to be really robust, very dynamic and adaptable. But the reality is that, you know, we, the uh, antibiotics were developed in the sulfa antibiotics in the late 1930s, the, uh, penicillin derived antibiotics, 1940s into 1950s. So we're, we're sneaking up on a hundred years of this stuff being in our, our environment, you know, multiple generations now. And I think that that multi-generational exposure may be making people less adaptable to the food that they're eating. Wow. So that antibiotics has gone into your microbiome and changed the way it would have, would have normally processed what was coming into it. Maybe just removing some of the things that could have done, done some of that, that yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a guess. Like there, there's literature that kind of supports that mm -hmm. as a theory, but it's a, it's a guess. Yeah. Yeah. What about, what are some good anti-inflammatory foods? I, just finding anything that doesn't piss the immune system off. So like, it, you know, for me, green salads weren't really a good option. Like it caused inflammation in my gut and it can I think be it does from that to, for me too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, oxalates, which are these, uh, uh, organic acids that, that can precipitate into like calcium oxalate for, for kidney stones. Uh, every once in a while you'll hear a story of somebody doing like, uh, a green smoothie with a bunch of spinach and they end up with kidney damage or kidney failure because, the oxalates precipitate out in the blood and, and it creates little, little glass like structures that, that literally like lance through the kidneys and destroy them. So, um, is eating greens bad is, uh, is a green smoothie bad? No, but doing like a quart of it at a time might be disastrous. You know, it's kind of the dose response curve on that. So, uh, I think just trying to find anything that doesn't 
cause one problems for years. I thought that I had these really wacky, constant blood sugar issues. And then I started thinking about, uh, the amount of eggs that I was eating. And then I pulled eggs out of my diet for a while and all these weird blood sugar issues just went away. And then I reintroduced the eggs and it was like this brain fog and lethargy and fatigue. And I'm like, shit, I've got an egg intolerance, you know? (laughs) And so like, I, I very rarely can eat eggs. I'll, I'll save it for like, if I'm traveling and I can do the yolk easier than the white. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll save it as my emergency food. Like if I'm traveling and I can't find anything else and I'll, I'll get like a couple of eggs over medium and just kind of carve the yolk out and eat that and, and call it good. So that's an example. Like for me, eggs are not a great option. Dairy is not a great option. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I've talked to Chris Cresser about this stuff though, and he thrives on full fat dairy and, and the whole protein dairy and whatnot. So I think that that ends up becoming fairly individual as to what's going to be problematic for one person versus another. It's funny though. I mean, it sounds like we should just listen to our body, but so many people don't listen to their body and they'll continue right. to eat things that upset their immune system, upset their stomach over and over again, really just because it tastes good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, stuff tastes good. And then I also, I, I think a piece of it is um, if you have never gone five days without eating gluten, a week without eating mm-hmm. gluten, you may in your whole life never know what a baseline of not having an inflamed gut is. And again, not everybody responds negatively to gluten, but this is kind of the power of doing an elimination diet, some sort of a paleo reset or even a carnivore reset for 30 days is that you pull virtually everything out of the mix that could cause you problems. Then you start reintroducing foods one at a time. And if you notice a problem, then you make a decision. Like, do I keep it in or do I jettison (laughs) that thing? You know, but, uh, the, the greasy used car salesman pitch that I've had with a lot of people. And they're like, why would I pull this stuff out? It's like, well, you've never not done it. Mm-hmm. And you really need to give your, your gut a little bit of time to heal. So give it a shot for 30 days. And then let's, let's just kind of reassess at the end of that. Yep. And that's something I've tried to, um, and some of my friends have done that and seen some great results, but, uh, I want to switch gears here because I know you've been into fitness, you've been into physical activity, I mean, ever since your you know early weightlifting days is, is what what I could find. Have you found a balance now that works best for you when it comes to physical fitness? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I uh, jujitsu is kind of my main jam, and so everything that I do is kind of oriented towards supporting that. I don't really compete. I, I just it's just my recreation and kind of where I get my community. But I try to do I I do that, but then I also look at some of the kind of longevity research. And I, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for a decent amount of zone two cardio like that, that, you know, very aerobic based cardio doing a little bit of zone five cardio, like that hard anaerobic training, but you only need like a dose a week, maybe two here and Mm -hmm. there. You, you don't need a lot. And then resistance training, you know, trying to drop in the, the resistance training and, I, I feel like I'm at a pretty good spot with that. I've started doing a lot of the kin stretch FRC, um, uh, training and it, it, uh, it's really different. Like they, they, they train like the, the end range of the joint as the way that you, you would look at like me loading my shoulder in external rotation uh, as, uh, as important as a max bench press and really? stuff like that. So you would load and, it and, all the uh, way back. 
So the way that I would load it would be actually working, you know, like a resistance band. Mm -hmm. So I would hit end range and then, you know, fire that as hard as I can. So, uh, and and then, um, and then I'll, I'll go through and kind of do the same thing. So you're loading it in different ways. It's mainly isometric, but although they do train it through the full range of movement, but they, they find the end range of joints and they, they load it there and, and train that in a really dedicated way. And it's, I, I'm doing a terrible job. If you want some good, smart people to interview about it, I can I can connect you with them. But I I had a pretty severe back injury almost 20 years ago, and it, it had largely precluded me squatting much, deadlifting much, and um, I had just it, it seemed like a never ending train of back injuries. And I had uh, these folks, Sarah and Grace and Strange, who who uh, do Basis New York, and they're part of this kin stretch uh, kind of movement. Um, they did an assessment on me and what's happening is my back is tight in a way that I don't really have a hip that it, it, this, you know, that they would say <laughs> that if, if you can't press overhead in a certain way, you don't really have a shoulder because mm-hmm. a shoulder should meet certain parameters. Doesn't mean I don't press, but maybe I should press horizontally Got until it. I get my shoulder to a spot where I can press overhead. And so I started doing a bunch of work on, um, on my hips, like getting my internal rotation back, people who don't have internal rotation of the hips will ultimately end up having a, uh, a hip replacement. Like that just seems to be this like one-to-one deal. And when you, when you look at folks, people tend to have really, really shitty internal rotation of their hips, but I've been working on this for about three months and, um, my internal rotation is much better and I'm slowly getting to where I can load my squat and my deadlift deeper. So I've been working within the range of movement where my, my, my hips should be moving. My hips should be articulating. My pelvis should be stable. What's been happening in the past is because my hips are tight. My pelvis will start moving under load. And that's where I end up with disc injury, you know, yeah, like you the pushing your hips on. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so, um, this has been an interesting thing. And I mean, it, it's, uh, it's fascinating because they really, they're not going for like circus sideshow mobility. Like if you want to get the splits, they can help you get mm-hmm. to that and everything. But it's basically, can you go into a full squat and actually be squatting in a way that your, you know, your pelvis is doing what it should do versus it articulating as a movable joint, which it is not designed to do, you yeah. know, and what's going to keep you in the game from a longevity perspective better than just your hip functioning properly. You know, yeah, and and if you don't have that, yeah, sometimes, yeah, and shoulders, and you know, on on and on, and so those are kind of things. Like jujitsu is kind of my fun background deal. I do a little bit of snowboarding, a little bit of stand up paddleboarding, um, strength training, some zone two and zone five cardio, and then just generally trying to be active in this. Uh, but this kin stretch FRC stuff has been huge for me. Like, I can't cool. can't say enough good about it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to yeah. look it up. Was um, element element. LMNT. Yep. That was, you designed that around having trouble recovering. Is that right? Yeah. And I mean, the, the, uh, the real story there is that my friends, Tyler and Luis, Tyler Cartwright and Luis Villasenor, the founders of keto gains, they had been savvy to the, the need 
of increased electrolytes, specifically sodium within their, their folks that they worked with for a long time. There's a guy, Stan Efferding, that's, that's not only is he a big dude, but he's uh, pretty popular in kind of the power bodybuilding scene. And he's been talking about the increased need for sodium for a long time. Uh, Nicholas, uh, uh, or, uh, Nick Lentineo, I'm forgetting his name, but he's a, a farm D um, and he wrote the salt fix and, and he talked about mm-hmm. the need for, for more sodium and that, that sodium really wasn't placed uh, to really hang all the ills of like cardiovascular disease and whatnot. But those guys were really the ones that put all this information on my radar. And when I realized how important electrolytes were mm-hmm. in particular sodium, we got together and we made this, uh, Keto aid is what we called it because we we're kind of catering to keto, you know lower carb athletes, but this really applies to everybody. But it was uh, you know a certain amount of sodium chloride, some potassium chloride from no salt, some magnesium citrate, uh, lemon juice, stevia. Mix it up with water and and then just drink it as you needed. And we posted that thing as a free downloadable guide. And within six months, we had like a half million downloads. Like Dang. it was crazy. It just went like wildfire. And what folks started telling us, they're like, man, I really wish you would do something like a stick pack because it sucks mixing this stuff up. And then like going through TSA when I'm traveling with three bags of white powders, kind of, <laughs> kind of dodgy, you know? And so we didn't set out to, to, you know, like, like do five years Chocolate. ago, I had no, yeah, you know, flavor. yeah. And it, it's a really good one in coffee. But I had no thought about doing this. It, it was really by accident, but we recognized that there was this huge need. We did this freemium thing where we're, you know, helping people just be aware, hey, address this problem. And then it was really the folks that were, were uh, that had followed that advice had huge benefits like sleep improved, um, uh, heart rate variability improved, mm-hmm. their, their recovery from training improved. And then they said, I would really like, you know, it'd be great if you had a more convenient option around mm-hmm. this. Yeah. Was that, well, I guess give people who don't know, what is it? It's an electrolyte product that is sodium heavy. It, it has a gram of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium. The magnesium is from magnesium malate, which is one of the most absorbable forms of magnesium. Um, it's built with the idea that people are getting bulk of their electrolytes from a, a ideally a, a minimally processed whole food diet. So you should end up with more potassium at the end of the day than sodium, but ideally you're getting that from, from dietary sources. And so that, that oftentimes people will say, well, you should have more potassium in it, but we're really encouraging people to get the potassium from whole food. Awesome. Is there a yeah. time when you recommend to use it or when do you use it? I, I usually do one first thing in the morning nice. and then, uh, jujitsu, I will do, I will sip on one during our, our regular class mm-hmm. and class starts at noon. I'll sip on one during that class. And then, uh, right before open mat, I will kind of chug the rest of it so that I I've got one in me right before I do the open mat. And if I do all of the open mat, I, I might do a little bit of a second one. But then I might do another one later, later in the day, if I'm feeling kind of knackered and run down. And definitely if I have any type of like toe cramp or fatigue or anything like that, like I'll definitely do more. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Question from my fiance. Cause we've been using a lot of them and we love them. She, you know, she enters a lot of her food into 
I think it's my fitness pal. Mm-hmm. It's something you can enter, you know, you know, what's your, you know, what well, your diet into the, my fitness pal. And when she enters one of the packets in there, it tells her she has her full sodium intake for the day. Right. So she was like worried about that. What, what, what is your suggestion for that? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. So the, the standard dietary recommendations are to consume two grams, 2000 milligrams or less of sodium per day. Uh, when we look at research on this, what we find is that there's kind of a U curve with regards to sodium intake and the low ebb, the lowest all cause mortality, morbidity, mortality Mm -hmm. is at about five grams of sodium per day. And so at two grams of sodium per day, morbidity mortality is quite vigorous and it, it goes up really quickly as you get below two grams per day. And then at the interesting thing is at the higher and higher intake of salt, it's a flatter curve. So it's much more benign, you know, as far as that goes. So we kind of put our, our safe bottom floor for sodium at about five grams per day for, for most people. If somebody is a hypertensive individual, they have hypertension. We don't really recommend element for those folks. But it's also worth noting that the the studies that have looked at hypertension, the low sodium diet interventions, it doesn't fix the problem. Like the problem by and large in those scenarios is that the person is insulin resistant. And if we address the insulin resistance, then they typically require more sodium after that. So that's a piece of it. Um, At the higher end, like when we start looking at athletic populations, the American Council of Sports Medicine has some rough guidelines, which are high motor output, heat, humidity, and depending on the size of the individual, they will recommend seven to 10 grams of sodium per day. So markedly elevated. Yeah. Active people. Uh, if you're lower carb that can double your, your sodium needs. So like if somebody's uh, ketogenic carnivore, low carb that can, uh, uh, double that. So like we routinely will see people that need, 10 grams of sodium per day. If they're kind of high motor output and they're, they're, they're on the lower carb side of things. We did some work with uh, a national hockey league team and they, they shared with us that they, they do these uh, sweat patches on these guys. So it will tell them how much total body water that they lose and also the sodium they lose. And these hockey players are, are big guys are 200 plus pounds are not huge, but they're, they're, they're big dudes. Mm-hmm. But these guys through the course of a game will lose 10 pounds of water and 10 grams of sodium, 10,000 milligrams of sodium. Wow. And if they don't replace that, their sleep is disturbed. Their heart rate variability is off. They, they, you know, they, they just don't recover. So if you are an athlete and you're following the, the medical guidelines of consuming two grams or fewer of sodium per day. Like you're never going to get caught up on that. And what your body does is it pulls sodium out of the bones, but when it pulls sodium out of the bones, it also pulls calcium out of the bones. So you're, you're likely exacerbating bone mineral loss under those circumstances. Yeah. 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 That's, and you know, I always thought too, I mean, we're both really active and that's what I kept, you know, would say is like, we're probably more active than most. So we need right. more of this. We need more electrolytes to, to get back to where we need to be. Rob, what's, what's on the horizon for you? What are you working on now? What's next? Oh man, it's, it's funny. Uh, you might see me doing some of the nutrition continuing ed for CrossFit again, oddly enough. Okay. I don't know if you know any of my background, but I got yeah. fired from CrossFit spectacularly back in 2009, but they reached out to me and are interested in I mean, you were one of the first me- 
gyms of CrossFit ever. We, we, we were the first and fourth CrossFit affiliate gyms in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I helped co-found both of those. And so that's interesting. Like that'll, that'll definitely be interesting. Um, the, a lot of my work day to day is just trying to beat the drum on this regenerative ag mm-hmm. story and kind of have an intersection between health medicine and our, our food systems. You yeah. know, like, I feel like those things need to be better, uh, dovetailed together. And for, for right or wrong, I seem to be on the, um, the non accepted side of like every part of, of, you know, the mainstream, like, uh, 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 low carb diets are bad because they, it, you know, they promote meat and meat is supposed to be terrible for the environment and it's accelerating climate change. And, you know, uh, every single thing I'm involved with, uh, Joel Salatin has a book and the title is everything I do get is illegal. And like, I I'm, I'm there. It's like it, it, everything I do social media wise on my, on my sub stack and everything. Um, it is censor worthy because it's not what, what falls within the, the standard accepted yep. guidelines, you know, <laughs> from dietary recommendations, just simply suggesting that, um, well-managed grazing animals may actually be a massive boon for the environment and a, a key, you know, feature of like food resilience and, and whatnot. That's crazy talk. Like, uh, you know, yeah. you're, you're a, you're a climate change denier if you suggest that stuff. So, uh, I I'm just kind of counting the days to, you know, till I get canceled fully and I disappear. <laughs> so, uh, but it, until then I'm just kind of beating the drum on all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. the documentary was amazing. Um, I did not read the book, so I found it through the documentary, mm-hmm. Sacred Cow. And awesome. it, I mean, it was incredible to watch. And I, you know, I never really dove into the, and I'm going to mispronounce it, but the agriculture where they graze and they just kind of move pasture to pasture yep, yep. to pasture. Yep. Um, that seems amazing, right? And then you put into perspective how, like, all these huge cornfields were taking over, you know, massive parts of land. And I mean, it was just so educational part for me that... I feel like everybody needs to to watch that documentary. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, we put a lot of work into it and it, it, at a minimum, um, is climate change an important topic? Yeah. I, I think it is without mm-hmm. a doubt. It behooves us to really make sure we get it right. Figure out what we're doing is right. Maybe I'm crazy. Maybe I'm totally wrong, but you know, when I, I went on Joe Rogan recently and, and there was a comment in there that was, and we talked about uh, sacred cow and regenerative ag and all this stuff. It was a really interesting. And I thought pretty insightful comment that this guy had. He was like, let's say that Rob and Diana are 80% wrong, but 20% right about what they're doing. Climate change is so important that it's critical that we figure out what that 20% is and we do it. Mm-hmm. Now let's flip the, the narrative. Let's say these guys are 95% right. If they're 95% right, then we are literally fucking everything up. We're doing everything wrong. And if this is as important a topic as, as what's being suggested, then we're, we're literally driving the boat in, into the iceberg, you know? And, and so it was, a, it was nice to see someone kind of couch it because that's been even on, um, nutrition intervention stuff. Like I've worked with elite athletes. I've worked with military personnel. I I spent six years working with the Naval special warfare resiliency program where I worked with seals and their boat teams and their families on, on health and nutrition stuff. It's awesome. But my main focus has been people like myself who have complex gut and autoimmune issues 
and they went the mainstream medical route and they're still sick and and they don't want to be sick, you know? And my only desire in my career has been to give people an option, to give them a choice. You know, it's like immunosuppressant drugs and surgery may not be the only things that you've got. Maybe, you know, a profound dietary change could could alter your health in such a way that you don't need those. And so similarly with this topic of like food systems and regenerative ag and climate change, I just want to throw out there that there may be some alternatives, you know, that uh, yeah. properly managed grazing animals may actually be a huge benefit for the environment and may be a critical part of our a secure, you know, future food system. Amazing. And dude, Rob, thank you for sharing hour and 10 minutes with me as we leave where can people find your work uh robwolf.com is kind of the main spot that i have some material i have a Substack, robwolf.substack.com uh i have some social media accounts it's broadcast only i don't do any interaction on like instagram i i have been on twitter a little bit more of late because uh with the Elon landing there, yeah, I've just there been go. kind of intrigued, you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah. Those are the places to track me down. We have a podcast, the healthy rebellion radio yep. that my wife and I do each week. And those are the places to track me down. Oh, last question. How are the two kids? They're great. They're great. Zoe just turned 10. So we have a, wow. a 10 year old and a seven year old. Yeah. I can't believe it, man. Yeah. It's crazy. goes by fast. I Holy get married. Smokes next week so nice we're gonna probably start that journey yeah man thank you very much Uh, but it's awesome do do it do it earlier as opposed to later for sure like uh, the the sleep deprivation sucks so yeah (laughs) yeah well man thank you again for coming on it's been awesome super educational which i love about these types of podcasts and i'll I'll love to have you on again sometime and uh we'll talk whatever's currently going on anytime you want me back i'm there Awesome, man. Have a wonderful day and we'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.